This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Tour to Lovecraft, The Tales. Vote rigging in America. Sandy Peterson. And Count Dracula, Alchemist. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Ken and Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something to either protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. It's time once again for Among My Many Hats. This, of course, is a segment in which the covert self-promotion of the rest of this podcast is replaced by the overt self-promotion of one or perhaps even both of us talking about an upcoming project. And in this case, the talker of upcoming projector is Ken, because you have a Kickstarter in the works for a uh, an old fave that you're going to bring to uh, to new life, reanimate uh, even perhaps, because uh, you and Hal Mangold of uh, Atomic Overmind uh, who uh, we recently heard talking about layout and art direction here on the show, uh, in his capacity, in his hat, as Major Domo of Atomic Overmind, the Overmind of the Atoms, are, uh, is going to launch a Kickstarter for Tour de Lovecraft Tales. This is your, uh, at present, uh, slim yet beautiful volume going through all of Lovecraft stories in alphabetical order and uh, chronological order oh sorry chronological order and finding cool little uh, mini essay uh, thoughts to share on each of them and uh, you're going to bring this back in in a new exciting form that requires the assistance of viewers or listeners like you the listeners and viewers in the audience people people who receive their sensoria by any organ ears noses so there's All going to be an aromatherapy aspect to this? Pineal glands, obviously. Right. Um, yes. Uh, the new form, first of all, Hal is insatiable lust with the notion of putting a hard cover around this thing. There are one or two little infelicities in the prose that I want to fix. And we have heard from literally tens of readers and listeners who want the uh, remit of the book expanded to include the revision stories. And as more Lovecraft scholarship has been done, even since 2008 or whenever it was, I wrote this thing, it has become more and more and more apparent that revision to Lovecraft meant 
Ah, I guess I'll rewrite it. Yep. If you want the tentacles done right, do the tentacles yourself. Do the tentacles yourself. And, of course, uh, Lovecraft criticism has indeed uh, expanded um, almost to unrecognizability since 2008 when I did write it. So the introduction to Lovecraft criticism that I begin the book with also probably could use another page or so. So there is... Uh, reasons to update. There are reasons to expand. If the Kickstarter does well, we may add in other requested desiderata, such as brief summaries of the stories. So if you don't want to go read The Tree to find out why I say The Tree isn't very good, I can give you a little summary of what happens in The Tree. Also, Lovecraft poetry. We're not going to do every single one of the poems, partially because many of them are terrible, and most of them uh, to write anything about them would be to write a longer piece than the poem itself. But, for example, the fungi from Yugath cycle is one that people are very interested in for good reason. So we can add some bits to address the poetry. And then, should all go well, uh, there are 13 essays that I did for Weird Tales magazine back when that was a somewhat going concern on the topic of the settings in Lovecraft. And this is things like Antarctica and Britain and Arkham, and all of those good places. And I examine Lovecraft's output in terms of where he output it, or where he put it when he outputted it. And those uh, essays could be finished up with the last four or five, turned into a book, maybe combined with other trenchant pieces of Lovecraft criticism myself, for a Tour to Lovecraft Volume 2, The Destinations. And if we get uh, lots and lots of love in the Kickstarter, which is either happening now or will be happening very, very shortly, uh, then that's what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and do both books simultaneously, and everyone who backed can have the satisfaction that they've made me do some work. And if you if you don't think that's satisfying, ask Kat how satisfying it is <laughs> to make me do some work. So, are there going to be different levels of, of fancy schmanciness that the edition is going to achieve, depending on uh, how well it does? Are there lots of, like, color plates or uh, stuff like that? Uh, this is a how question, because it involves uh, actually knowing anything. So, I would say that Hal probably holds within his heart the lusts to wind up doing a handwritten version in my blood, like Saddam Hussein's Koran, and we may have to uh, back off from his craziness. But I don't know if there's going to be a special edition that you get as an extra uh, tier. I'm pretty sure that the limits of what we're going to do with stretch goals are that we're going to maybe get some more lovely Torin Atkinson art of the black and white line art type that we already have, because it's gorgeous. And why would you lose that? So are you uh, going to be revisiting the, the tales at all? Or are you going to go back? At, because I've learned that when one goes in, to ferret out a minor infelicity or two, one sometimes finds uh, things that uh, one wishes to expand at greater depths. Is there any threat of that happening? Uh, I suppose the degree of threat will be uh, contingent on the degree of backing, but it is unlikely that I will go back to a story that I read in 2008 and haven't read since and not have something else to say about it, especially if I go back and reread it before going back to that essay, so as to write the handsome plot summary. So it's not, it's not unpossible. At the very least, I will uh, expand some of the sections that are pretty much just, 
Here is my response, and here's a cool thing you can use in your game. Also, as I say, Lovecraft Criticism has expanded its own self in the last eight years, so there will be a degree to which I'm looking to say, what does Robert Waugh have to say about this? What is, um, uh, other critics of Lovecraft that have uh, popped up in the interstices? And what, is that how Lovecraft trenchant? Criticism has changed in the intervening years, just that there are more uh, players, or are there, uh, is there a, a new sort of controversy or direction that is... Uh, taken over now that they're uh, that ST Joshi no longer uh, strides the the wastelands alone. Um, even in the even in the old terrible days, he was accompanied by his brother and rival in the proper mythic sense, Robert M. Price. But now I think that uh, uh, the I think it's uh, Gerald Harmon or Gerard Harmon, the guy who looks at Lovecraft primarily as much like Joshi does as a philosopher, but who uses his argument about Lovecraft's philosophy as a means of doing some really interesting close reading of the stories themselves. So it's less about the philosophy of cosmic materialism and more about the philosophy of how the real is to be presented. And when you are presenting the surreal and unreal, as Lovecraft did, that apparently uh, bears some discussion. So there will be a good deal of that. And then there's a guy named Thacker, who I think has also taken Lovecraft's uh, ideas and uh, gone both off into his own exciting universe with them, but has tried to maintain a degree of response to the text. And so I have to go and read Thacker, for example. So that'll be something. And there are just more of the good old standard literary style essays where there are new scholars who are trying to make their bones in the by now kind of sexy world of Lovecraft studies. Uh, There are whole compilations of academic essays about Lovecraft that don't even have a word by Joshi in them, which is terrifying in its uh, vast, unforgiving vistas of possibility. So are you uh, taking uh, requests for what, like, uh, if, if people blow through the uh, stretch goal requirements to get a tour to Lovecraft the settings, do you do you want ideas for uh, even more work that you could do in exchange for lots of money? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm always interested in lots of money, and then if you have lots of money, I'm willing to listen to your ideas and nod, maybe even rub my chin sagely. Yeah, so in, in this, it's not I have lots of money, but the right. collective fans of Lovecraft and Ken Height all together could yes. pool all their money. They so, could. for example, you could do tour to Lovecraft the people, and you could do a, a, a sort of a who's who of all of the characters in Lovecraft. Perhaps uh, more critically important might be Love, uh, Tour to Lovecraft, uh, The Dangers, where you would present all the monsters and gods, because as you may have noticed, Lovecraft puts a little more thought into some of his <laughs> monsters and gods than he does into some of his characters. <laughs> um, there are characters that he has that are psychologically real, and those are characters that are more closely based on Lovecraft than other characters. So, for example... Mm, figure um, that. Mm. Yeah, guess guess about that. But, you know, it's true of Jonathan Franzen, too, and no one says mean things about him. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Everyone says, says mean things mean about, things about Jonathan Franzen. Um, <laughs> I, I think if you're you're writing uh, literature and being taken seriously, part of somebody else's job is to say mean things about you. Yeah. So, I guess uh, to further whet people's a- appetite for this and... Uh, when you hear this, uh, I guess go over to the old, uh, to ye old uh, Kickstarter and type in Tour to Lovecraft and see what comes up. Or I guess you could go to the Atomic Overmind site, uh, which will 
give you an update on exactly when probably the Kickstarter is going to launch. Let's say, let's pretend that's going to happen. Um, yeah, let's pretend. Also, keep an eye, obviously, on Facebooks and Twitters of mine and Hal's. Yes. So I, I have this beautiful uh, original copy of the book in my hand, and to uh, pad out this uh, segment into a bit of content, what I'm going to do is I'm going to riffle through and come to a story and ask you to uh, free associate uh, what comes to mind as the most exciting or interesting thing about that story, and then the astute reader can compare uh, what you've said on print to what you say off the top of your head. So let's just right. go riffle, riffle, riffle. Uh, what do you have to say about the moon bog? What's the most important thing about the moon bog from early March of 1921? Uh, the most important thing about the moon bog is the degree to which the Irish scenery is very sketchy and the Irish uh, politics and uh, economics likewise. And that what Lovecraft really wants to do is tell a story of a classical haunting. Uh, the classical qualities of the moon bog, especially given that it is set apparently deliberately in a place that the Romans never reached is I think one of the more interesting things about it, that the, uh, that the, 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 the phantoms that uh, consume Dennis Berry and terrify his guest are explicitly identified with the Greek uh, nature spirits. And so the notion is the notion that the Greek nature spirits are universal or is the notion that the Romans somehow pushed the Greek nature spirits out into a desolate Celtic wastelands like Ireland, or is the notion that um, something else is going on uh, and that uh, the, uh, and then that Lovecraft is saying something about art or about the uh, experience of culture, because of course, Dennis Berry begins as an architect to some extent and a rebuilder and a antiquarian somewhat after Lovecraft's heart, although he comes to a bad end. And so the, uh, the, the, there's any number of things that might be going on in the moon bog. And because it's so short, uh, there's only a few ways that Lovecraft can sleight of hand hide it if he is doing those things. So that is, I guess, the question one asks about the moon bog. Also, for a 1921 story, it's not terrible. It pops along nicely. And, you know, the haunting at the end is certainly, it's not the same old, same old that everyone has seen. I mean, it's basically as you see an apparition and someone vanishes, but it's, but it's a different kind of apparition and it's a different kind of vanishing. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty fond of that story. So let's whoosh ahead now to, uh, uh 1932 and 1933. Uh, what first comes to your mind when I say the words through the gates of the silver key? Ah, uh, so much is going on in that story, and so little of it makes any sense. Um, that, of course, is the collaboration with E. Hoffman Price, which actually is close to a genuine collaboration, and that I think between 500 and 1,500 of Price's words were left in it, not necessarily in the same order or it was, connected it was to each other. It just the conjunctions. Yes. All the ands and these are left in. So that is an interesting notion, because it is a, a, a close to a genuine collaboration, it, Later on in his life, and earlier in his life, he did some genuine collaborations to the horror of St. Martin's Beach with his wife and uh, all the world's oceans uh, with Frank Barlow. But the nature of, of that just structurally is interesting. And then, of course, the fact that Price probably introduced into it the notion of the eternal return, that there is this cyclical quality to Randolph Carter that gets picked up as early as the Silver Key, but 
Randolph Carter's life keeps recapitulating itself in a way that might be an interesting discussion in a story that is explicitly about theosophy and Hinduism or, or sort of a, a bastardized Hinduism and the, and the myth of the return that these things keep coming around and happening again and again and again. And because they literally do to uh, Randolph Carter, it might be an interesting way to look at uh, both theosophy and Lovecraft, which I think is what I do in that section. And then also the specific qualities of Randolph Carter. And that would be again, one of the, if there was a putative, Tour de Lovecraft, the, he- the heroes or the, the passengers, maybe is the better term for that. You could actually look at Carter because although he's kind of a non-entity in all the stories, even in the silver key, which is all about his state of mind and state of being, his state of mind and being doesn't really impress. Uh, but since there are so many different stories of him written over the various stages of Lovecraft's career, he sort of approaches being a person in a cubist fashion and what you can actually say about Randolph Carter, given that he has, I think at least two or three incompatible life stories is kind of an interesting question that would be fun to look at again through the, through the, uh, the sort of post Nietzschean theosophical, uh, setup that, uh, that they've got going on in, uh, through the gates. Uh, so finally is our last amuse bouche to uh, wet people's appetite for the Kickstarter. I'm going to cheat and pick my favorite, Lovecraft story, All right. The Whisper in Darkness. As I said at the time, The Whisper in Darkness is, along with At the Mountains of Madness, one of the stories in which Lovecraft is most obviously and deliberately creating a mythology. And the mythology that he creates turns out to be the UFO mythology, whether that's because Lovecraft and all the various uh, cranks and weirdos who wrote the UFO mythology up um, were reading the same stuff and based on the same stuff or whether because they all read Lovecraft and internalized it, which I think is Jason Colavito's theory is an interesting question to ask. But also that story is super good because of that deliberate degree of both mystification. And if you examine the story, not only is there no evidence at the end as Lovecraft often does that any of it ever happened, but also there is a larger than even normal for Lovecraft number of deliberate contradictions laid into the story and teasing those apart is probably the work of a longer piece that I'm going to get to, but looking at the various directions in which, you know, the, there's the sort of the standard position where you take Wilmarth's opinion as the, the governing opinion. But of course, Akeley has two different opinions, both of which differ from Wilmarth's and one of which is post Mygoization. And so the question of, is that a Mygo opinion? Is that uh, Nilothotep's opinion? Is that a human perspective still? Or is that the closest that you get to a Mygo attempting to create a human perspective for purposes of luring and tempting? There's a lot of sort of questions of viewpoint going on that are not usual questions in a Lovecraft story. And so that creates some deliberate contradictions. And then there is uh, the larger thing that I think I probably posted in the uh, Ken writes about stuff on my go in which once you have established that this is what is going on in 1932, that has a number of knock on effects for what you think is going on in the thirties and then in the fifties. And then with the actual UFO crisis. And of course, Delta green famously overlapped uh, UFO paranoia and mythos paranoia officially in uh, Delta green, but the roots of that go back at least as far as Whisper in Darkness, and that might be an interesting question to approach and to say and to compare, say, Donald Kehoe's work or Carl Jung's work to what Lovecraft said and see 
how many of their fundamental tenets were actually, in so many words, prefigured by Lovecraft's uh, Whisperer. So, folks, uh, if you throw enough uh, uh, support at Ken uh, in the Kickstarter for uh, Tour de Lovecraft, uh, he just might be impelled to further explore that line of thought. So that, I think, brings our overt self-promotion to an end. Uh, Ken, you can uh, take off your Mego hat and uh, we'll head on through this commercial and then maybe uh, you'll pick up a stovepipe hat or perhaps even a nice jaunty 1960s vintage fedora or cowboy hat. Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty Velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse... History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. So, folks, as you listen to this segment, uh, Ken and I are back in recording time. We are two weeks out from the U.S. election as we speak to each other today. Uh, however, uh, the first time you'll have a chance to listen to this episode will be the Friday right before the election. And so uh, we can't get too topical given our, our lag time, but uh, one of the candidates has been making a big fuss, a fuss that I thought would la- lead us to call down the spirit of Tippecanoe and, yes, the spirit of Tyler too for a special electoral history hut, and specifically a history hut on the whole question of vote rigging in America. One of the candidates is complaining that he might lose. I guess I'm giving away which candidate it is, uh, because... You should say they might lose so that people will will still be mystified as to who is... Uh, Because oddly (laughs) enough, there's a correlation, historically, Ken, between the person who is losing and claims of vote rigging. It's odd. It's It's weird how that works. Uh, And... uh, (laughs) Mr. Trump, as he likes to be called, perhaps has a capacious definition of rigging, since, for example, uh, having skits on Saturday Night Live that adroitly skewer him count as rigging in his uh, uh, definition. But I thought we would look at, there have been periods in in American history, certainly, when lots of actual vote rigging was uh, going on. And so I thought, Ken, we would invite you to uh, take us down uh, the the uh, memory lane in, in that respect. Uh, these days, whether you think vote rigging is possible tends to be uh, partisan in nature. It also reflects your uh, racial background as to whether you think that uh, voter disenfranchisement based on claims of vote rigging is actually worse than uh, the instances of voter fraud. And of course, there's a partisan blend to what you will say today. But 
if we go back, you know, as recently as uh, 2004, John Kerry thought that Ohio had been possibly stolen from him and was convinced to uh, stay quiet about that. So it's not so long ago that uh, the other side of the aisle had... It was, as I say, it about two weeks ago that Al Gore was still complaining about it. So Yes, and so uh, <laughs> there is the, the partisan complexion of whether you think there's large-scale voter fraud uh, uh, differs back in time. But, uh, Ken, I guess before we look at the question of, of when the old-timey, straight-on voter fraud went away, uh, why don't you take us through a, a tour of American electoral fraud. Uh, did the first fraudulent elections coincide with the first elections? Probably not, because there was no reason to rig the vote for George Washington, obviously. Although, almost certainly the first congressional elections involved at least some of what we might consider rigging, in that, you know, you if you were a Tory, you knew better than to show up to the polls uh, in, in some uh, jurisdictions, in Massachusetts especially. And tarring or feathering might otherwise there might be have order. been some tarring. There might have been some feathering. The uh, statewide votes for um, the Continental Congress are probably, you know, more honest than many votes in those same states today. And the degree to which it was possible to rig a vote in an era when the franchise was very much more restricted than it was today, and in many states restricted entirely to people who knew each other, uh, might have, you know, you could not, I think, physically have rigged the vote in Delaware. Uh, there was probably, you know, only a, a, a number of hundreds of, of voters, and I'm probably being generous, who could vote in Delaware, and they all wanted Caesar Romney, and that's who they got, was Caesar Romney. By the time that we're voting for the U.S. Congress, we have the rise of the New York political machine headed at one point by Alexander Hamilton and then suddenly and much to his chagrin by Aaron Burr. <laughs> and, <laughs> and by his, I mean Alexander Hamilton's. It was not Burr's chagrin at all that headed it. And that became the ancestor of the Tammany Hall machine, which became the ancestor of the machine that uh, still operates in uh, New York to this very day. So in a way, good for you, Aaron Burr. Once more helping out America from beyond the grave. So uh, when we get to the modern era, there's uh, a competition to see who can uh, stuff lots of ballots and uh, lots of re revered presidents uh, uh, had a, a stuffed ballot box uh, or two in their back pocket, uh, FDR certainly. Uh, is there a more colorful, more exciting uh, president uh, with whom uh, vote rigging is associated than uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Well, if there is, um, I have not met there. I mean, there are people who are colorful and exciting, more colorful and exciting than LBJ. And certainly one assumes that there was vote rigging and a plenty that put Andrew Jackson in office. But there was also, you know, as with uh, many vote rigging, it is a matter of uh, over egging the pudding rather than changing the actual opinion of the electorate. The, uh, you know, Jackson had a genuine broad level of support in that newly expanded franchise. And again, it would have been child's play to vote rig an era where now virtually all the voters are illiterate and barely anyone knows anyone. And it's all being done by a judge who is probably appointed by the guy who's running or by his foe. So there's a, a great era in 19th century vote rigging. But Lyndon Johnson does indeed carry on that glorious tradition. The classic example is his 1948 election for Congress, at which it was discovered at the moment when it was thought that Lyndon might lose a number of uncounted ballots in the county election office, 87 of which had been filled out in alphabetical order in green ink. And that... <laughs> 
became, as it turned out, just the margin that was needed to elect Lyndon Johnson. Uh, they went back and looked, and it turned out other excitable county officials had written nines over sevens to make uh, a 700-vote tally become a 900-vote tally, for example. But the 87 votes in alphabetical order in green ink is what gave him the lasting sobriquet of Landslide Lyndon Baines Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> and Landslide Lyndon never shook that even when he won in a genuine landslide in 1964. So if there was a, um, a degree of bear down um, of Georgia Tech versus Cumberland in his uh, battle against uh, Barry Goldwater, it might have been a little need to erase that uh, razor's edge victory in the public memory. Yeah, so I'm sure, you know, after laying waste to Goldwater, he's like, oh, damn, it's ironic in this context. Ah! I'm I'm not sure that, L I think LBJ may have gone to his grave never knowing that anything was ironic in a context. He was one of America's last great pre-ironic people. Well, he was he was haunted by insecurity, though. I, I'm yeah, but sure I think he... that being haunted by insecurity does not necessarily require you to be able to recognize irony. <laughs> but at any rate, certainly, uh, <laughs> and there are certainly other stories in, uh, in Robert Caro's uh, Titanic by series of uh, Johnson in which, you know, uh, electioneering was a matter of uh, rounding up the men with the hats and the guns uh, to go and uh, uh, coerce illiterate immigrants to go and, uh, and vote and make sure that the uh, uh, Mexican-Americans who uh, worked on various uh, uh, ranches all voted the same way. And you, uh, you had a shotgun on hand to ensure that. That's uh, certainly a form of, of vote rigging, even if actual uh, people are marking their ballots they're doing so obviously uh uh under uh, a lot of duress and in the 1960 election of course uh legend uh, certainly has it that uh, your home state of illinois was purchased for uh, john f by his father joe kennedy and uh how much truth is there to that legend well i think that it is probably you know a certain fact i mean the daily machine rigged votes then the daily machine rigged votes in my lifetime the remnants of the daily machine are doing their best to rig votes now. I still cherish the memory and I vote in the goo gooiest of precincts. Uh, that is Chicagoese for good government. We uh, make fun of them and call them infants if they believe in good government. The goo gooiest <laughs> of precincts. I vote in the, in, in Hyde Park. Yes, for those and looking at the core of Ken's political philosophy, it's just been expressed, folks. Yes. Uh, and the lovely and talented James Wallace happened to be visiting me. This was the 2000 election. And he was wandering around following me about. We walked into the polling place. I cast my ballot and the lovely and talented James Wallace, who, as you uh, listeners may or may not know, is a seven foot tall Englishman and is, you know, so very English that uh, area Canadians were coming to uh, buy stamps from him. He was asked not once, but thrice if he wished to cast a ballot. <laughs> <laughs> so even in a, a precinct that desperately, desperately cares, uh, there is still what uh, there, there is still no ballot security. And of course, elsewhere in Chicago, there has never been any ballot security. So it is pretty much accepted even by people who say that the election in 1960 came out, you know, roughly the way that everyone intended, because they say that Republicans downstate stole so many votes for Nixon that they balanced out miraculously the number of votes that Daley stole or not stole, but magically created for uh, John F. Kennedy. And again, you know, voter rolls, uh, even to this day, the Pew report said that there's something like 18 million Americans on 
electoral rolls that are either dead or felons or not actually citizens. And so that could be a problem if an election is closer than 18 million votes. But because elections are handled at the county level, it takes a vast effort to get all 18 million false electors to the imaginary polls. So you have to look at county by county. Is this county run by a machine or is this county not run by a machine? And which party runs the machine is almost irrelevant because the collar counties in uh, Illinois, DuPage and um, uh, Will especially, have their own Republican machines that do their darndest to amplify Republican turnout. So the question is, um, and of course, Lyndon Johnson stole Texas just like he stole Tex- his district in 1948, and I don't think anyone questions that. Further, of course, Texas had Jim Crow at the time, so the vote was being massively suppressed all across Texas in the same way that it was through the rest of the, at the time, solid Democratic South. So, you know, the the, the little niggling questions of did Daly steal an extra 20,000 votes kind of pale in the fact that millions of Americans weren't getting to vote at all, so... You know, and that was the last election in which they might have voted Republican. So who can say, right? But uh, Texas and Illinois, if they were both stolen, that would have and were both flipped, that would have given Nixon the election by one electoral vote. The argument by serious sophologists is that countervailing vote fraud in Illinois meant that it probably came out roughly the way that people voted honestly. So I, you know, again, it's it's one of those things that there's enough fog that you can accept or reject that depending, but you should know that you're going against sort of um, uh, sober Brookings Institute history types when you do just like in the Florida recount, uh, the various newspaper organizations came through and they ran a big recount run by the NORC, which is the opinion research center here in Chicago at the university. And all of these newspapers did a full on recount and said, Oh, look at that. Bush did win. That's a shocker. But obviously there is so much chaff in the air, literally in some cases, chaffs and chads, chaffs and chads in the Florida election that that you can sort of make your own decision. And of course the, one of the big sort of sticking points for gore, hardcore partisans is that the Supreme court canceled the recount before it could be conducted by county election officials in all the various counties of Florida, or in his case, just the two. Um, so it is not so much that the election was rigged as it was just taken away by the Supreme court, which of course is something that the Supreme court did in, um, uh, or not the Supreme court, the uh, special election committee did in 1876, uh, for the Hayes Tilton election, when there was a literal corrupt bargain between Republicans and Democrats to give the election to the Republican, but end reconstruction for the Democrats. So is that the, uh, last case when an actual rigged election occurred at the national level in the U S uh, again, for an actual quote unquote rigged election, as opposed to an election involving voter suppression or involving, um, uh, you know, some other sort of chicanery of which there are many. I think the 1960 election is probably the last one that was putatively settled by rigged votes. Um, 1876 is the last one that was so clearly rigged that even historians say, yeah, that was, that was a sham all the way around. But again, the, the question of what could have been an honest election in the reconstruction South is, well, since they, they didn't have one, uh, in 1876, we may never know. So. Right. And for and for 60, it seems like the rigging was done on a level playing field and didn't necessarily sway the election. It does seem that way. And again, that is the consent that that's the consensus of electoral historians. And it is probably the way to bet. But, but as a loyal Chicagoan, obviously, I have to believe that we made all the difference. And that's why Kennedy got to be president. Right. 
Uh, because uh, uh, in your uh, Chicago Film Festival edition of Ken and Robin Consume Media, you declared Chicago its own sovereign nation. Well, it occurred to me that uh, people still say Hong Kong when they talk about Hong Kong films. That's right. So, it's a different aesthetic. Yeah. So I this one was a this was a uh, an independent. Well, we'll talk about that later. But yes, D- does your flag have a deep dish pizza on it? No, our flag has uh, four beautiful six pointed red stars that are heraldically unique between two sky blue stripes representing an imaginary version of the Chicago River because it has not been that blue since the Potawatomi came across it. But one of the unique stars is a deep dish picture, right? It, it, uh, the, it's actually um, uh, a pepperoni. There you go. Okay, well, uh, so if you are listening to this after the election and somebody is saying it's rigged, uh, we have now explained to you that probably not. And uh, that allows us to move on to our next segment. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by patrons exactly like... Sean Krauss. Urs Blumentritt. Wayne Peterson. Brian Thomas. And Jason Franzella. So it's time for yet another segment of Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And this time it's Robin talking to Sandy Peterson from the gloriously Teutonic confines of the Schloss Neuhausen, uh, where we both uh, just wrapped up the Kraken uh, convention. Hey, Sandy, welcome to our podcast. Good day, sir. Uh, So I thought uh, we would start by checking in with uh, what's up with Peterson Games. Peterson Games. We um, have just finished our God's War Kickstarter, which uh, did almost six hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, of business and at and two thousand backers. And now we are going to be shipping this new strategy game all over the world. We uh, the future games I'm working on, which was publicly displayed for the first time here at this convention, is a game called Planet Apocalypse, and. Uh, we are. We have just finished sending some of our previous games to China for printing and publication, and they should all be out 
by the end of the year. So the terrible Cthulhu War shortage is about to come to an end. It's the, ter- the Cthulhu War shortage will probably come to an end in um, March or April. Um, because it takes a little longer to produce than Orcs Must Die and uh, Dyson Sign. Yes. But yeah, the, the, there's uh, some giant figures that yeah. need to be manufactured. Yes, exactly. And then the God's War figures the current plan, and of course there, there can be slips between cup, cup and lip, but our plan is, and we have it organized to accomplish this, is that it will be out before Gen Con. Now, uh, Cthulhu Wars... Which is August for those not in the, in the biz. Yes. Um, so uh, Cthulhu Wars uh, went through, I think, an interesting evolution because at one point you... Um, these ideas came from an iOS game that you were thinking of doing. Yes, yes. In fact, we did a uh, um, we tried to do a Kickstarter campaign for the Cthulhu World Combat, which was the original actor, and this uh, failed humiliatingly. And uh, then my partners of the time said we should do a, a board game, and of course I scoffed at it because obviously a board game was idiotic and would never <laughs> succeed. And uh, <clears throat> but they nagged me into it, and then of course it. Right, and the reason it turned out to be genius and a huge success is that it's all about perceived value, and the perceived value of an iOS app is 99 cents, Yes. and the perceived value of a gigantic, amazing board game full of jaw-dropping Cthulhu figures that would be, you know, just cool in and of themselves uh, got people excited. Yes, in fact, the figures were so fabulous and great that it actually set up two, well, three challenges for us. One was that the factory we were working with had to invent new technology just to produce them because they were they, no one had ever done figures like this who makes eight inch tall pvc pla- models of of monsters right and um uh, maybe the japanese for for anime stuff but that's about it right and also because um people would see them and say oh these look good but i hear again and again if, when you see them in person they are always more impressive than the the images. Yeah, when you see yeah. them on the web, you don't actually yeah, you, you don't get the, You don't get the full impact. When yeah. you pick them up and you smell them and you handle like, wow, <laughs> these are amazing. And we can't get that across on the web. And the third problem, which was kind of interesting, is that there was a general assumption that, uh, the, that because the miniatures were so good, that the game must not be because I guess karmic balance must be maintained. Right. And uh, and in general, that is an attitude that even I share a little bit, right? But uh, but the fact is, then people would play Cthulhu Wars, and so the reviews were all stuff like, "Oh my gosh, there's actually a game here, and it's really fun." And it's and then I started getting the counter attack, so to speak, where they'd say, "This game's so good, everyone should play it," but it costs so much, so now you need to destroy the awesome miniatures and replace them with cardboard counters or meeples or something. Right. And so so I'm kind of so I figure if some people are assuming the game is not good because the miniatures are too good, and other people are saying the game's really good, you should have worse miniatures, then I'm I must be somewhere in Are, are you suggesting that there are a segment of gamers who like to complain, Sandy? <laughs> um no, of course not. <laughs> no, that would be crazy talk. So what was the design process of taking the concept uh, from the iOS version and <clears throat> turning it into something that uh, worked as the foundation for a board game. Well, the only part of the iOS concept that that remained, which was a pretty core concept, was the idea that the world was was over now, and it was going to be battling factions of the Cthulhu monsters destroying it. Um, way back in 1980, I did the uh, the Call of Cthulhu game, the first ever Cthulhu game, right, and. Um, at that time, I, 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 it, it, the game set up like the basic paradigm 
for Cthulhu games, taken mostly from Dunwich Horror, but you know, where there's heroic investigators stopping the monsters, right? And pretty much almost every single Cthulhu game since then, Elder Sign, what have you, they all they all follow that principle: investigators right. versus the mythos. So, I wanted to, that's, and that's a that's a great. That's a great plot right. for the Cthulhu game, but I, I didn't want to do it for Cthulhu Wars. I wanted to have something new, and one of the things I toy with periodically in my in my Call of Cthulhu games is what happens like after the Holocaust, after they come, what goes on, you know. And maybe I'm attracted to that because of the book The Nightland by William Hodgson, but I wanted to see that because because always in the in Call of Cthulhu or other games like that, the campaign ends either by defeating the, the bad guys or not defeating them, but in either case. They, you don't get to see Cthulhu rise from the sea with all his power, right? Because either he comes back right. and you lose, or you don't. He's, so he's, he's got don't, a boat stuck in it. Exactly. But other than yeah. That. Right. So you don't have. So you don't get to see him blanketing the land with telepathy and mountains of protoplasm rising from the sea and armies. Of the, all that stuff isn't there. You never see all that stuff. And I wanted to, and so I thought, well, the only thing that can possibly thwart Cthulhu is something as horrible as he is. Because by definition, you, he can't be beat by humanity. Right. So that's where the, that's the genesis of the game for World Combat, and that came into the the board game, and then from there, it kind of just flowed out of my head into the paper in a way that has never before happened with one of my games. And so basically, it for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, when you look look at it played, it looks a lot like it's Risk. Yes, there's a, there's a map with areas, and there's dudes on a map, risk or access and allies or something like that, right. except with better figures. Yes, and the uh, and it's a simple mechanical system, but it's exceptions based, so that each of the uh, Cthulhu factions does different stuff. Yes, and and has different paths they must follow because you're kind of building your own tech trees. You go as you earn spell books different ways. Everyone has different. All the factions there. It's it's not only my feeling, but I've also been told it's one of the most asymmetrical games out there, as far as 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 how different the factions feel. So that's uh, for people that that appeals to. Then right. I have now, it. now, if it wasn't exciting enough to have you back in Cthulhu Town, your <laughs> next thing took you back to Glorantha. Yes. And I mention this be, uh, particularly because uh, it's the 50th anniversary of Glorantha, <clears throat> and yes. uh, that's part of the theme just of in time the event. For, just, for the God's War to go right back into the. The, the heavily thematic um, God's War game, which is actually uh, most Grant the games, of course, all take place during the Third Age, you know, and this one goes right back to the to the primal creation yeah. and destruction myth of the world. So, which which everyone knows about when they play when if they know anything about Grant because it's constantly referenced in in uh, discussions and and books and histories of the cults. And so this is your chance to mess with that. Right. So and so, how uh, how similar is this to Cthulhu Wars? How big a departure is it? From uh, um, if if you've played Cthulhu Wars, and I describe the God's War rules to you, you will you will think of it as being very different. But if you haven't played Cthulhu Wars, then it would probably seem similar. If you know what I mean, it's like if you haven't played Risk, and I try to describe Access and Allies to you, it will sound similar. Right, so it's, right. Not, it's not a reskinning of Cthulhu. No, it's Wars, not. But... No, I mean, there's, 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 it has a power track. It has you win by victory points. You have a faction with certain specific units. You you do tasks to earn you gifts, and they have exceptions so based powers as well. Yes, and and so so there so a lot of that is the same. But there's other things. There's the chaos rift. There's I guess what I can say is that the the way you earn power is completely different. The way you earn victory points is completely different. But Fundamentally, underneath it, it's it's a branch of the of of the same game, the same game family. Maybe I should say. I guess the best way to describe the difference is 
in feel. It feels different because Cthulhu Wars feels a lot like a knife fight in a back alley. You're rolling around in the dirt. You're stabbing at kidneys. You're gouging eyes out. You're, you're, you're right. God's War feels more like a formal duel where there's rules and you're polite some of the time. And, but underneath it, you're still trying to kill each other. But there's actual times you, you cooperate in God's Wars and don't... And Cthulhu Wars is all about being the... the it's very savage and primal. Right. And God's War is not. It's sophisticated and, and organized. Uh, now, how did it feel to be back working on... A, I mean, you, how long has it been since you've worked on a Glorantha project? Well, does my campaign at home that I run every Saturday night count? So you're still immersed in that. Yeah, I still... I, I, yeah, I play... When I play role-playing games, which admittedly, I don't play them every week like I used to because now often I will say today I've got my friends come over every Saturday night right. today instead of playing uh, in my Grantha campaign we are going to play test Planet Apocalypse or something right. but but it, it's still the same guys and we talk about Grantha and of course playing God's War got us pretty steeped back in Glorantha. so since my players know Glorantha, they really liked it and this was backed up when I took God's War to a bunch of people that had knew nothing about Glorantha, never even heard of it and they played it and loved it and, and they all started adopting. The thing that I thought was really cool was that, and it helped confirm, that's how I confirm myself as a designer, when people see things I hoped they would, because you don't always know if they're gonna. Right. Right. And they started having, person, like, assigning personality traits and stereotypes to the different factions that were very similar to what they are in, in, right. in the Glorantha world. They were like, so oh, game- Chaos is a monster we're all terrified of, and Storm is a big bully, and, and Sky is a passive-aggressive jerk, you know, and the, all of that was, you know... So, so your game in a completely different medium was still expressing the core idea yes. that yeah. those of us who know that world still find so familiar. Yeah. So uh, this is... Your collaboration with Greg is, as far as I can think of, you know... Po- one of one of the, if not the great collaborations. It was really successful for both of us. Greg would spill over with ideas and um, di- you know disorganizedly, and then I would coherently place them into a system that made sense. And then I would, and then I would take like two or three disparate ideas of his, and, try, and then they would like I could say these kind of work together. What if it does this? And then. You know, yeah, it was a it was a good partnership, right? Uh, and Greg describes his creative process often as discovering, or even sort of in a passive sense. You know, this is when Beatpot Aelrin was discovered. Uh, yes, because uh, he is imagining it yes. in such a pure sort of primal way. Greg, Greg is sort of a fountain of creative work, whereas I am like, I hate to use this word, but like more syncretic, where I'll see dis- different things and and put them together in a new way. But I don't necessarily come up with something out of the blue that's totally never seen before. Right. But he will take something and you'll extrapolate it and yes. really... Yes, and then I, I would run with it. And then suddenly it's, there's all this stuff that we got going that we never had before. Um, and am I right in sensing that you're the one who has sort of had the responsibility for bringing in the sort of sense of natural history to Glorantha? Yes. So with the troll... I, I added science yes. to Glorantha with, with Trollback. And uh, and other future works. Well, for example, when we did the the uh, the bestiary, Grant the bestiary, actually gave scientific Latin names to all the monsters. Yeah. So there was a Xanthropus, you know, for the for the orcs for the trolls and stuff, and all these things that. So uh, when you were collaborating, were you uh, doing a lot of spitballing together, or would you go off and work on something and then bring it back to him? How did the process of that? We work? would. He would be in his office, and I would be mine, and periodically. I would wander in his office or vice versa, and then we'd we'd rant to each other and 
sometimes and and sometimes there'd be a short interaction and sometimes there would be um like a, a bouncing back and forth of ideas that got more and more powerful and go over and then there's all this stuff and then our heads were filled and then i would run away to type a bunch of stuff down and see if try to make it work um and i i have the sense that this was more of a, a partnership than he has had later with other people who collaborated uh, with galanta greg has told me this was the case so i mean i have not seen greg's work process since 1988 um, but if greg's I, I greg says yes it was that was with sandy it worked really really well and the other guys it works right and it's right. okay but it wasn't the same kind of simpatico that we had the same wavelength in some way so and we weren't similar at all you right. understand we were very different in our in our approaches but the two approaches i guess all our weak points matched up or something yes if, if you weren't the, designing role-playing games you'd be solving crimes together because it's the, <laughs> yeah exactly the, the yes buddy cop uh, team of uh, uh separately differently yes it would, yes it's archie goodwin Nerowolf. yes i'm not uh, sure which one i am uh so for example when i would uh, work with greg on things and i needed to find out, you know, what is the deal with this myth? What's happening here? Just asking him, there would be a bunch of ideas, but in order to force his hand, the way to do it was to go ahead and write something, which yes. I thought would probably be wrong. But if it was wrong, he would then know what to do right, but he would need yeah. the example of the thing that... Yes, I never... Once I got to the writing point, it was always correct. Cause, right, because right. in our discussion, we I knew... And even if he hadn't sounded every last detail, I, like I could see what where it had to go, and then it would it would be there. When I when I left Chaosium in '88, I, I know Greg short, briefly considered closing down the company. He said, "Well, he said you may not be the heart of the company, Sandy, because I guess I am that, but you're some other really major organ <laughs> that is hard for it to survive without well, the liver, yeah. say, you know." Or, and I go, or maybe that thing on, on the top. Yeah, of the so here, yeah, so I'm Glorantha's spleen or something, right? But uh, <clears throat> but that was that was his attitude towards what I'd contributed. So um, now, uh, because my uh, unseen partner on the podcast is uh, Kenneth Height. I would be remiss if I did not ask some Call of Cthulhu questions. Okay, um, ask and away. He took uh, inspiration for Trail of Cthulhu from what he understood of your original first uh, crack at Call of Cthulhu, which then changed during playtesting. So how did your initial vision of the game differ from what was uh, published? Well, originally, way back in 1979... I had put together a game that I called American Gothic, which was a game about having ghost stories and being investigators in the modern world doing these cool things. And um, I, uh, Chiasium, uh, eventually with Chiasium, they said we, they were going to do a game, a game based on Lovecraft, which I was super excited to work on, and which they eventually handed to me in, in Toto. And at that point, they said, you must use the basic role-playing system. So... I sat down with that and American Gothic system, which was completely alien to basic role playing, was was dropped. And I said, "Okay, how can I fit? How can I make the basic role playing system work in the modern world? What do I need to do? I guess I have to have a drive car skill." And so I just kind of it's kind of all evolved like a tree growing over time. There wasn't a point where I was sat down and it came from my head like Zeus. For example, Cthulhu Wars kind of did that. It just like poured out of my head onto the onto the computer, but call but Call of Cthulhu was more like I would stop and like be, there'd be a month or two where like I don't know what to do about people going crazy in the stories and the monsters being really scary because I don't just want them to just go fight the monsters. How can I do that? And then the sanity came out 
right? And then later on, like, how do I portray the the great old ones? Because they're unthinkably powerful. Yet we in the game like Call of Duty, you have to meet them, right? So what do I do? So I, that took a long time, and eventually I came up with two separate systems for great old ones. And the original version of the game, I did two different drafts: one with one version, one with the other. And the other one was supposed to supersede, second one was supposed to supersede it, but Cassian like put both drafts in at the same time, which is why the great old ones are kind of incoherent in the first version because there's like two different conflicting. Well, so does Genesis. They, yeah. they have the same thing in Genesis. So there well, you go. yes, and the same reason. To what extent do you think that Call of Cthulhu aided in the uh, incredible explosion of Lovecraft in pop culture? It isn't quite mainstream well, pop culture well, yet. Well, when which... I was at the Cthulhu convention in, in uh, I can't think if it was Portland or Providence now, because they both start with the letter P and I went to them both, they handed out, they handed out Howie Awards for greatness in contribution to Lovecraft Diana. And um, th- these guys who have spent much more time trying to analyze the pop culture of Cthulhu than I, because I'm always steeped in it anyway, right? Right. Um, I do remember that when I first was reading, that, that at the time I was writing Call of Cthulhu, every single person I knew who knew about Lovecraft knew about him because I had introduced them. There was like, I was a one-man person that knew about Lovecraft. No one there was there was no Lovecraft culture of any sort. And these guys at the Lovecraft Society of either Portland or Providence, you know, I think it's Portland actually, they they said the reason that Lovecraft is well known today is for two people. Stuart Gordon doing the movies Reanimator from Beyond and so forth, and you, Sandy Peterson, for doing Call of Cthulhu. And those two different things permeated through through culture and culminated in Lovecraft being super popular. So they gave me the second ever Howie and Stuart Gordon got the first, which I do not begrudge him. But, uh, but I will say how that I had done it earlier than him because you know his movie came out later than Call right. of Cthulhu. But yeah, I would. I, I, I mean, they had they made this big pitch to me about how that was the case, and they convinced me. So it's a second hand, but yeah, <laughs> I guess I guess Cthulhu was half of it, you know, because yeah. there was because in 1980 there was nothing about him, you know, and uh, now Cthulhu is is like a joke. Well, not a joke, but you can—you I mean, can tell right. jokes with Cthulhu as the punchline. Yeah, you know he's well—he's fairly well known. He shows up in political cartoons. And... Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and apparently, Call of Cthulhu is a part of that because even if you haven't played Call of Cthulhu or another Lovecraft game, you've, you've like—you've often like Call of Cthulhu wasn't everyone that played D and D by 1990 had heard of Call of Cthulhu. You know, the guys at TSR were playing Call of Cthulhu as their house campaign. You know, and it kind of. Went through everything. So, so uh, to bring this full circle again, uh, back to Peterson Games, you've got a uh, Kickstarter uh, coming in the future for uh, Planet Apocalypse. So, yes. what do people need to know about <clears throat> Planet Apocalypse as they save up their shekels for? Is this another gigantic box of fun? Uh, probably not as expensive as God's War and Cthulhu Wars, but it's another gigantic box of fun. And it is going back to another game that I worked on, very similar. Basically, it's hell rising up to take over the world with their horrendous demons. And you must lead soldiers against them. And it's a co-op game. You're all on the same team. You're uh, you know, a ragtag band of unlikely heroes kind of thing. And you, it, there's, there's, some, there's a tower defense element in laying ambushes. There's combat against the demons. And so it's kind of like Doom which I did back in 1993, where it's you against the demons. But instead of being futuristic on a space station, it is on Earth with modern era guys. So it's sort of... My players describe it almost as like Road Warrior meets Doom because it's, it's during the apocalypse and everyone's having hard lives and there's demons. So that's it. 
So what was the big... Uh, Doing the board game, sort of. Right. Uh, what was the big design challenge of switching to the collaborative game, board game format? Well, I'd already done it with the game Orcs Must Die last year, where, um, where I had to work out a game where there would be... Uh, there was uh, humans uh, or elves and dwarfs fighting against raids of orcs and trolls from the other world, and so I and so I'd already gotten I'd already solved the des- the major design challenges with that, and then I simply took some elements of that design and made it f- far less light, far more strategic, far more decision making than I had in the in the earlier one, which, is, which is, remains a light, almost family game. Right. And what are the basic design challenges of a cooperative game? The, the design challenges of a cooperative game are that um, the, the players have to uh, be balanced in the sense that each of the of the characters I give them, because I give them different characters, have to feel like they are unique and interesting and something new to try out, and um, and yet not inferior to the others. Okay, and and the other challenge is that in a co-op game, uh, you have to make sure the player the players can't win too often when they first play it because the game has to seem like a challenge but so you have to ramp it up but then if they always lose then that's also not good and uh the biggest challenge in a co-op game is that there tends to be in co-op game the game policeman who takes it upon him or herself to tell everyone what to do during their turn right. so it takes and then it begins a one-player thing right and that's like that is that to me, that's terrible. Yes. Right. So, so my, so the way I, the way I did figure out a way to, to try to fix that, and it works. Obviously, if you have a really strong-willed game policeman, it's hard, it's harder to overthrow him. But the the two things I did to make that to solve that issue of co-op games is first, there's enough randomness and decision making in what you're doing and try to get for your character that really he doesn't know what's best for you. Oh, he can't solve the game on your behalf, so you can. You need to make some decisions on your own. And the other is that the team captain has a lot of power in the game. He chooses if anyone can spend power, spend courage from the courage pool. He decides who the monsters attack, and it, and, it's, and he, he and there's no uh, counteracting his his demands. And he's and, but you're only captain for one turn, then it passes the next guy. So everyone takes it. So in, in essence, everyone is kind to the game policeman, but it keeps going around the circle. So so what this what happens in effect in the game is that. Is that when it's your turn to be the captain, you're doing the captain stuff, but you kind of let the other guys alone because they're going to be captain next. Right. And and uh, I was I actually pretty pretty happy with the way that. Right. Went so out. you're basically filling the power vacuum that the game policeman otherwise fills. would take. Yes. By giving by having this guy, it's his job to do this. And uh, I've seen it happen in the games and here, where, where like the person who's in power, sometimes you'll have a more passive person be the captain and, and you know, he or she will say, well, who should I have him attack? And the other players will say, you're the captain, you have to decide. Because even the guys who tend to want to be the policemen, they want the captain to have that power. Right. Right. You know, they're kind of pro, you know, dictatorship. And so it sort of, it kind of works out. And then, but actually, because he has the power, he usually doesn't interfere much with the guys. He waits for the moments when it's his time to chew, to chime, you know. So it's, uh, I was kind of happy about that. Then anyway, that's the big, that's a really big design challenge for a co-op game, as uh, you know. Yes. So uh, when uh, people want to find Planet Apocalypse, where on the web do they find Peterson Games? Peterson Games is at petersongames.com. What a stunning coincidence. Yeah, well, it's, thank, it's easy. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Sandy, for okay, talking to you us. You bet. Thank you.
When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agency that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. Halloween is not quite over, folks, because it's time for us to part the shadowy cobwebs that lead into the armadillo-infested confines of the Horror Hut. And this time, yes, the armadillos are scampering at our feet because it's a Dracula question, and a Dracula question from Patreon backer Pedrick Griffin. And that question is, given Dracula was supposedly an accomplished alchemist in his first life, what would a theoretical, as opposed to an actual, alchemically-based vampire look like. Ken, what's the connection, first of all, between Dracula and alchemy? Okay. Dracula is described in the novel in chapter 23. Van Helsing describes Dracula as, in life, a most wonderful man, soldier, statesman, and alchemist, which latter was the highest development of the science knowledge of his time. He had a mighty brain, a learning beyond compare, and a heart that knew no fear and no remorse. So that is the basis on which we call Dracula an alchemist is uh, Stoker being fanciful. The, you know, historical uh, Vlad Tepes, who is not Count Dracula, was, as far as anyone knows, you know, educated perfectly well, but was no alchemist. Um, there are, of course, plenty of weirdo alchemists who get up to stuff, although I don't know of any famous alchemist who is also a famous vampire. Yeah, but Vlad's experiments were more in the uh, impaling uh, section exactly. of the uh, scientific manual. Right, yes. There's what happens when you impale someone? And like all science, repetition, you've got to have the repeatable experiment. Yep. So and he had a small control group of people he didn't impale, so there exactly. you go. Exactly, yes. Divided the population of Wallachia into two, the control group and the study group. And then, you know, you you know impale people upside down or, so, you know, it's right. just... I'm not, I'm not an impaleologist. I can't tell you right. whether or not modern impaling descends from his impaling at all. But I've led you on a digression away from alchemy. You have. So that is where the alchemy comes from. Dracula, uh, the character and Dracula, the, uh, count or the voivod both flourished during the great age of alchemy, the late 15th century when, um, it is beginning to be transformed by new and exciting textbooks uh, looted from Byzantium or stolen from Byzantium or found uh, in Byzantium. And uh, the Greek and Arabic learning is being translated in Italy. And so alchemical thought is burbling over the land. Uh, Count Dracula Dracula seems to have been set a little bit later when alchemy is even more on its horse. And of course, you have the connection, the possible connections between the family of Dracula and the family of Elizabeth Bathory, because the Count John Dracula in the 16th century has the Bathory wolf's teeth on his 
uh, arms. So that means that there must have been some connection at some point. And Elizabeth Bathory, of course, famously got up to all manner of bad doings with witches and indeed possibly with an alchemist. So uh, there's your tangential connection, such as it is. So if we want to take the idea that Dracula was an alchemist and make more of it, uh, how do we do that? And what are the results? Well, I think the first thing that you do is you decide that vampirism itself is an alchemical created condition that the way that dracula became a vampire is not by blaspheming god and not by being bit by a different vampire it is by boiling up a, a elixir of vampirism and drinking it down and then discovering that the immortality potion that he thought he'd made the um uh, the the red elixir as they call it did indeed have a vampiric component to it oh those tricky side effects for example, in the Six Keys of Eudoxus, an alchemical text that is ascribed to Eudoxus of Canidus, who was a classical-era astronomer, I think, and uh, was actually probably written by a Frenchman in the 17th century, says, for example, um, Behold a great mystery which I reveal to you without an enigma. This is the secret of the two mercuries which contain the two tinctures. And it continues to say, the most sharp vinegar is the red mercury, but the better to determine these two mercuries, feed them with flesh of their own species, the blood of innocence, whose throat is cut. So this is not a leap, as we call it in the trade. No, there is. And, and partially this is because there's a lot of alchemical uh, work out there. And if you do a vast Google search on an alchemical database for the word blood, you indeed turn up things. As if blood has been considered a magical substance by every culture ever. Right. Further on down the line, Eudoxus, uh, or Pseudo-Eudoxus, as I suppose we should call him, says, Therefore, despair of nothing, search the source of the liquor of the sages, which contains all that is necessary for the work. It is hidden upon the, under, under the stone. Strike upon it with the red of magic fire, and a fountain will issue out. Then do as I have shown you. Prepare the bath of the king with the blood of the innocents, and you will have the animated mercury of the wise. And that right there is good old Eudoxus telling you how to make the red elixir. And when you hear the words red elixir and you're thinking about vampires anyway, that is, of course, exactly the direction that you go. So if Dracula, we'll continue to call him this, uh, in his lifetime as an alchemist, is looking for the red elixir and stumbles on the original of the pseudo-eudoxus, he may say, well, I think that we should do all of this other stuff and make sure that our um, uh, kings are bathed uh, properly. There's an element of alchemy that comes into vogue later in the 16th century, and this is antimony, which is a metal and uh, is known as the gray wolf uh, to alchemists. Or the Black King, it is also a star metal. So the the star and the pentagram are symbols of alchemy, or, or symbols rather of antimony. And so if you are monkeying around with antimony, maybe the magic antimony is what turns your red mercury into a vampire mercury, and you wind up with uh, a vampiric red elixir. So I would say that probably, as best we can guess, Dracula is practicing Eudoxian alchemy, uh, being a forerunner of the art, possibly with techniques learned in the Scalamance. He has used antimony to amplify the power of his uh, red elixir, and that is what has turned it into the gray wolf, the pentagram. And you might say, why did he, he doesn't turn into a werewolf, Ken? He turns into a vampire, and that's probably just because he had 
enough uh, mercury to um, uh, keep the uh, red elixir on the job. Or perhaps he was using the vermilion, which is the uh, true mercury or, or mercuric sulfide, which has um, uh, the red dragon in it, is that's the name of vermilion. So the red dragon, Dracula means dragon. There you go. Problem solved. Right. And so if we are chasing the dragon, uh, this implies a version of Dracula that uh, gives us a, a drug metaphor, because perhaps uh, rather than uh, entirely uh, biting his subjects, perhaps you just, you know, that's the difference between someone that Dracula wants to turn and somebody that Dracula just wants to uh, uh, dine upon, is if he wants to turn you, he has to inject you with red elixirs, so that perhaps these uh, nightly visits uh, to the uh, uh, women that he's preying upon in uh, the Stoker version or in whatever version you're doing, part of that process is, uh, you know, little the little uh, marks on your neck might not be fang marks at all, but might be from a hypodermic needle. And so then that allows you to bring in the whole addiction metaphor, which of course is already part and parcel of vampire mythology. Or you could even go further and say that in order to become uh, a vampire, he has to take you away and and bathe you and perform a, a ritual ceremony, which gives you uh, something for the heroes to come and interrupt and, and stop from happening. Are there other sort of plot developments or uh, motifs that we can begin to uh, uh, ping off if we're thinking of uh, this as a transmission of an elixir rather than uh, simply a matter of uh, draining blood? Well, there is the there is the documented case in the novel that Dracula feeds Mina his blood, and one can presume that he has done the same thing to Lucy when he had her alone, uh, with just without a room full of eyewitnesses. So the the transmission method of the elixir may not be anything so technological as syringes or even magic baths. It might be that Dracula has become, as the alchemist wished to become himself, the Athenor, the alchemical furnace in which alchemy is always going on. And so, therefore, his blood is always burbling away making elixir, and he may still have to uh, take regular uh, re-ups, right? And Dracula, the vampire, may be addicted to the pure stuff, uh, the pure Syricon and Vermilion um, uh, blend, the uh, Red Dragon and Black Wolf, and that that is what is necessary to keep his furnace going so that he keeps creating the kind of vampire blood that will uh, become its own vampire elixir and turn people when he makes them drink it. Or maybe the drinking of his blood is a next necessary fixative and you become a, a sort of a crazy running around vampire like Lucy was if he doesn't get to you after you rise and inject you with the the real deal or feed you the real, uh, the, the real uh, stone or the real elixir and get you uh, into full-on vampirehood uh, like himself. Because if you remember the story, Lucy uh, Westenra, when she rose, was not quite the sophisticated girl about town that she was before her death. She was sort of um, a creepy child-endangering weirdo. And that, one assumes, is the difference between getting your alchemical um, uh, prescription re-upped and not. Right. And there's also possibly the idea that the reason he has to drink blood is that he needs an infusion of pure human blood in order to keep the pH value or whatever other chemical balance of his uh, blood in check, or his uh, blood will devour the rest of his body. Right. And so that gives him the, the impetus to keep doing that. So it's not necessarily even a matter of uh, hunger, as it is a matter of keeping in the right alchemical balance. And that uh, if he doesn't do that, uh, you know, the crumbling is not out of hunger, but just because uh, his... 
he basically gets vampire cancer and his, his uh, uh, blood cells start devouring the rest of his body if he's because they got to eat something. So you got to feed it human blood or it'll, it'll eat the rest of you. And that, that ain't good uh, if you're an alchemical vampire. And the other uh, thing that that might imply is that that is why he has to rest in his own native earth, that his native earth is a alchemical balneum sicum. Uh, the sand bath is what it is called. Um, that uh, was used to provide even heating to an alchemical uh, mixture. Uh, the uh, earth might simply act to sort of stabilize that cycle so that when he's lying torpid on it, his blood is not devouring the rest of him, but he can't get up and do things. So it's not so much the sleeping that's bad for you. It's the wandering around without eating that's bad for you. Uh, the native earth may also have special alchemical properties, and it may have not been native earth so much as earth that contains certain mineral impurities or mineral superpurities, depending, or Dracula may have prepared these earths in their own alchemical bath to provide him with that suspended animation that allows him to actually live forever and ever and ever without having to denude the population uh, all the time. So even Dracula recognizes that if he's eating one person a night, he's going to run out of persons real soon. It's going to so attract attention as he, well. He needs, a, he needs a way to slow down his own met, met, metabolic process, and that is what the sleeping in Earth is for. It's not because it magically... Um, uh, it's, it's not a compulsion. It's not magically necessary. It's not a ritual. It's just a, a chemical process that allows him to lower his blood intake to a tolerable level while not letting the vampire elixir in his body um, uh, eat him up. Right. And if, he, and if when he is out running around doing things, the, the furnace that exchanges the uh, alchemical substance and, uh, for, the, uh, for human blood and keeps everything in balance, of course, is the heart, which is why if you stake him in the heart, you are disrupting that uh, process. That that's the uh, the, uh, the the Bunsen burner, the petri dish, the uh, strict fed and sparky machine of this whole process that keeps it going. And so that's why uh, you want to damage his heart uh, because that's you know you can then accelerate the process by which the uh, alchemical uh, vampire blood eats the rest of his body. Also, of course, when you introduce the wooden stake into the little Athenor that is his heart, you have added another ingredient, and so you've messed everything up. And it may again be that this, uh, the specifics of the wood matter, as uh, is true in legend and is less overtly mentioned in Stoker, Van Helsing, I think, lists it as a possibility, but they don't seem to go to any great trouble to make a stake out of Ash or Rowan and use that to, to, to nail him down, but... One can assume that if uh, various woods have various chemical properties and that introducing uh, a, a wood of one alchemical signature into the heart merely stops it and wood of another alchemical signature actually catalyzes a disruptive runaway reaction, hence the crumbling to dust in a, in a case like that. Right. And it might even be some sort of fungus or something on the wood that uh, has a rogue protein in it that goes and interferes with that process. Right. Or it could be that the, um, uh, that the, the, the wood grew in soil that contained a certain uh, heavy metal. And because we know that uh, plants can draw up heavy metals into them through the roots, that maybe the, uh, the soil was full of, of pitch blend ore or something else. And so it's uranium that is actually, being introduced into his body and screwing everything up. 
We're just lead. Right. And that introduces the the idea that our uh, Dracula hunters can discover this partway through and come up with some uh, more uh, theoretically effective Dracula killing mechanism that they can uh, attempt to use. It's a little safer than running up to him with a stake. Yeah. That's, uh, there's all sorts of logistical problems in that. And so, you know, you could have... Uh, a 1930s Van Helsing devising a radium gun or, uh, or what have you, or, you know, today you could have, uh, uh, a, uh, a vaccine for vampirism. Yes. Or, a, or at the very least a suppressant, right? Yes. Like you have with, with, uh, retroviruses, you, um, you take the suppressant and it amps up your own blood production and keeps the, uh, uh, vampire elixir basically sort of, you know, individual white blood cells floating around and you might be vampire, but, as long as they don't overbalance the content of your own blood, then everything's copacetic and that it could just be the sort of blood overproduction medications, or you could actually have to have the specific chemical that acts to counteract uh, the uh, elixir in a stake that you wind up being able to figure out what it is and put it into a pill or other injection. And so then your Van Helsings and your Draculas are both addicted and that's fun. And pharmaceutical companies, of course, uh, charge a lot of money for things that cure diseases uh, that there aren't that many, uh, that are rare diseases that not many people have. So, uh, you know, you could be bitten by the, your hook for your character, you were bitten by an alchemical vampire, and as long as you have the $25,000 a month to spend on your vampire suppressant pills, uh, you're golden. But if, uh, if you run out of cash, you're in trouble. And so that can be your whole justification to be a, a mercenary-type character you need to you know, continue to afford your your vampire uh, suppressant serum. And from there, you can, of course, slide into the, because of the pharma- pharmaceutical companies have an anti-vampire serum, what are the odds that the next lab over is building the pro-vampire serum for the government so they can build their Jason Bournes who go out with uh, super uh, vampire power in their blood and uh, can use super strength to fight Al-Qaeda or whoever. Um, if you, in, in the Bourne... Uh, legacy, the uh, Jeremy Renner one, it is explicitly said that uh, Jason Bourne powers are made by chemical injection, and th- there's a magical bunch of, of alchemy. It might as well be alchemy. It's it got at least as much value as the science they give in the movie. There's a bunch of of blue and red things that have to be mixed at a at a robot lab in the Philippines, and so they they make all of their their um uh, their their uh, Jason Bourne uh, juice. And uh, they're elixirs and they, and they run off with it. So the notion that once you've brought your alchemical vampirism into the modern age of, uh, big data and, uh, massive government biomedical and biochemical processes, you wind up with vampire super soldiers running around. Uh, well, when there's vampire super soldiers running around, that indicates that we have once again come to the end of another episode. So, uh, next time we will, uh, detail among other things the, a uh, great haul of books that you got from Powell. So yes, there's another Ken's bookshelf in the offing, meaning that next week we'll t- be talking about just about everything. So uh, join us then. And uh, if you're an American citizen who is listening to this days before the election, go out and vote and uh, don't vote for vampire super soldiers. We yes. want to forestall those a little while longer. Try, try and see uh, which candidate is against vampire super soldiers. Uh, we're going to have uh, uh, all the best vampire super soldiers, they're going to be huge. Huge, I tell you. We are going to use the vampire super soldiers in a controlled way. We're going to understand the vampire super soldiers. We're going to make sure that they are working for America, for women, not against them. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Podgrain Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Join such alchemically correct patrons as... Drew Clowery. Andrew Laliberte. Chris Lydon. Rick Neal. And Andrew Collins. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.